This is the A. I'm Rich Clay. And Norman G. This is the A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! The A is sponsored by Central Works, uh, a new play theater. We want to thank Central Works for sponsoring the A. Central Works reinventing theater one play at a time. Double yay. Double yay, yes. Thank you, <laughs> Gary and Jan. And we're going to have Jan on one of these days. Uh, oh, great. We, have, we have a fantastic guest, Stacy Cray. Stacy Cray is a musical writer. She's a singer and a musician. And she wrote the musical Love the Struggle, which deals with the relationship, the love relationship between uh, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. I always screw that name up. De Beauvoir. How are you doing, Stacy? <laughs> I'm I'm doing well, and I will just say at the outset that I'm that I am the proud writer, but I am also just the co-writer. So that I have a co-writer. His name is Yair Evnine. He's wonderful, and maybe we'll talk about him at some point. Oh, in the, great! In this show, so yeah, so it was a dual a dual effort. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. You and I met we during the musical cafe. I believe it was two years ago in two, 2018, where uh, I debuted my little mini musical Nia, and you debuted uh, Love the Struggle. And it's, it's gotten a life of its own, Love the Struggle. I mean, you have oh, now the Broadway actors working with you. And uh, I, it looks like if it hadn't been for COVID-19, it would have uh, expanded a little more. Well, we're hoping it's still going to go that way. Yes, COVID put a, put a bit of a damper on it. But we were lucky enough to record some really wonderful songs with um, some, you know, really for me, a, a dream team of, of singers. And so that was a really a really great honor and uh and i hope we'll get a chance to talk about nia a little bit too because um that was also a great show and and uh what a wonderful experience that musical cafe um uh workshop was for 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 me and i think for many of the people that were involved um and i loved seeing your work as well so yeah thank you thank you so much yeah we'll definitely talk about that and also really i want to talk about sartre and existentialism and the connection with that because yeah, I wrote about that with about four men in Paris. But as I begin our all of our podcasts, how was your week, Norman? I couldn't even tell you. I don't know. I, I'm done being um, a, a, an old man who is in denial about the fact that he has cancer. And oh, you're not working with uh, the uh, the doctors anymore. The doctors. We finished that one. There may be a makeup on Tuesday, but um, on Monday I start a whole new character. Oh gosh, and I have to. I haven't even looked at the stuff yet. But I do a standardized patient work with uh, medical students, so um, they have to figure out what's up with my character, and it's you know it's an always an interesting um, improv exercise. Today is a big event um, personally. Mara is going to have her first recital of her private students, and we're going to do it in the backyard. And you know, there's an, we've got a big backyard, so we'll be able to. We figured it out if. Friends and family, just a few friends and family come. We can spread them out in the yard. And, you know, it's trombone, so Lord knows you'll be able to hear it at any distance. That should be fantastic. But, yeah, that'll be happening later this afternoon. So our big part of our week was just clearing and cleaning, and our yard looks fabulous. <laughs> Stacy, I want to ask you, since you're a musician, do you also teach music, music or no? No, I mean, I, I am really a, a sort of a performing songwriter, and I would say a songwriter first. And so I, I can sing and play, you know, sort of passably well, but I'm not in a category where I would, would be able, I think, to, to teach anyone. Um, but I, I, think you're, I think you're a guitarist, aren't you? 
Yeah, I play guitar and I play a tiny bit of piano, but you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say to my guitar playing professional friends that I play guitar because you know, I mean, I can I I can hold my own. Uh, but as far as teaching, oh, I teach my daughter a little bit, I guess. But yeah, other than that, no, I I haven't never taught music. Yeah, well, that's that'll be cool, Norman. I mean, I, I feel excited for your students. And uh, did Mara tell you that I saw her yesterday while uh, no. now we're talking? Oh on yes, the you yeah. were on your. She said you were enjoying the day on your on your deck. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. It's uh, one of the cruel things about COVID nineteen. We're missing all these beautiful days, going places and doing things, and really, there's just nothing. You know, a lot of places are closed down. Well, Stacy, you're in Colorado now, right? I am. I am. And I, I left to escape. So I live in San Francisco and, you know, I absolutely love living in San Francisco, except in July and August when it's, you know, so foggy and I just right. start dreaming about moving to like Phoenix or someplace, the equator, anywhere where I can see the sun. So we had the opportunity to get out and come to Colorado and I've been here for a couple of weeks and it's, it's been really, it's just nice because we're in a small town. And so we have, we have the ability to walk places and just being in the mountains, there's something, um, there's really something energizing about it once you get over the altitude sickness. <laughs> yeah. Is it Boulder? What, what's, what city? I'm, I'm in Aspen actually. Ooh, so, beautiful. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And it's, it's a, if you've never been here, it's a really, it's a quaint little town. I mean, it's definitely got its bling, but it's, it's nice because you can really walk everywhere. And there are a lot of trails and such. And so, you know, it's just been a really, um, it's just been super peaceful and, and nice here and just, and just kind of different that I was getting a little ragged with the California stuff and, you know, I'll come back. I'm not complaining. California is a wonderful place to live, but, um, but yeah, that fog and I live in a right. foggy place in San Francisco and it just rolls in and it, and it kind of hits my yard and then it rolls back on itself and it rains. And I, you know, I was just, after a while, you just get the energy level goes way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can, t I can totally uh, feel, but it looks very beautiful in Colorado. And uh, I have no idea what, um, it, you know, if people are wearing masks or how things are as far as the COVID levels are in Colorado. But um, you they know. have, so there is, they're pretty serious about it here. There's a mask zone. So if you go into town, you have to wear your mask all the time, um, no matter, you know, what you're doing the only exception is if you're sitting down eating then you don't have to wear it but mm -hmm. otherwise it doesn't matter if you're six feet or 100 feet away from people they just want you to wear your mask in this what they call the mask zone and they actually have now um stenciled it on the sidewalks because there's so many tourists here to mm -hmm. just say in in bright green mask zone um and they're out enforcing it so they're pretty they're pretty serious about it and i think I think the concern here is more just that there are so many people coming from out of town. You know, there's so many tourists, a lot of international travelers. Um, and so I don't think there's a huge outbreak here as far as I am aware, but people are definitely, it feels a little bit like being in the Bay Area, right? Everybody's careful and, and, uh, and masks are, are required. In fact, I went, I, I ran out the door this morning without mine and, and got like, a, a, you know, 20 feet. And I realized I started having that thing, you know, that thing you get with your cell phone where you forget where your cell phone is. Or you can't find your cell That's phone. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. having that with the mask. Like I'm getting that mask panic of where is my mask? So. And also the, the stairs. I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, although I haven't gone out without the mask, but I do tend to stare at someone who isn't wearing a mask, not to shame them or whatever, but it's like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Right. And I have to remind myself myself. I mean, uh, and it's gotten a lot serious. I mean, we can dive into, 
current events. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, now people, you know, the law enforcement are now enforcing mask wearing. Where you can get a fine if you don't wear a mask. So I'm glad that we're taking it seriously, although it's probably too little too late. I mean, you know, we're getting into, I think almost 4 million Americans have COVID-19 and I think almost 160,000 have died. So the numbers just keep going up. And now Trump is now blocking <laughs> Dr. Blix. At first it was right. Fauci, and now it's Blix. So, you know, it's, right. it's, it's a little crazy. Um, I ask everyone, uh, Stacey, um, how, do you, how are you optimistic about the election? Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about, you know, what's going on politically? I'm, I, you know, I, I have been um, pretty paralyzed by all of this. And I think it's, uh, um, I mean, my, my eyes have been a lot more on the past, you know, few months, including some stuff that we talked about yesterday, Reg, uh, George Floyd and BLM and, and COVID and the theater and thinking about that more at a local level than I am at a national level, the national stuff is almost too big for me. I, you know, when you say my optimistic or I'm pessimistic, I am just, I have just huge questions about what is going to happen. And I feel like I'm not in a good position to, to predict that I'm more trying to process everything that's happened, you know, in the past, in the recent past, particularly to figure out how, how I can, um, how I can re, reintegrate with society and with community and with our country in a way that feels um, helpful. And um, I'm, I'm all for engaging. I'm more, I'm more of an engager than I am a, like, a, I don't like to sit around and complain or blame. I'm more thinking about what can, how can we change things? And so I'm, I'm sort of looking at it from that perspective. And from that perspective, I think I am somewhat optimistic actually. I mean, are you a are you disappointed that uh, Biden's the front runner, or uh, did you wish that I don't know I don't know if you were a Bernie I really don't know your political affiliation I, at all. I, I and I and I try to keep those things close to the vest because here's the thing I'm a philosophy major and so for me like for for me to pontificate on who was the best Democratic nominee would require me to go like I would want to take a PhD course before figuring that out. Um, I'm I'm not you know I don't have strong negative feelings about Joe Biden. Um, I, and, and as far as Bernie goes, um, I love, uh, I love an outlier. I always love an outlier. I always love someone who comes from outside. And so that's, that's pretty great. And Biden clearly is much more of a, of an insider. So that's a little, especially given, you know, I guess the distress that I have over Congress and as a whole and how politics operates at the national level, that's somewhat discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also discouraged at Congress still. I mean, that's been, you know, Pelosi and McConnell have been knocking their heads trying to get a stimulus package, a second stimulus package, and nothing's being done. And now I'm hearing oh, they write, you know, a, an executive order, which really pleases no one. Right. Um, I saw a, um, a, a meme, but a, a hashtag that I love this week. And they made a song to it. Mitch better have my money. <laughs> Taking the Rihanna song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was it was hilarious. I, I'm watching these people standing <laughs> in the street dancing. Mitch better have my money. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's serious. I mean, you know, some folks, you know, landlords, you know, they're not going to take an IOU. They want their money and um, right. mortgages, the same thing. Have you been starting doing the call, the uh, the phone bank thing, Norman? Today. 
That was another thing I should have mentioned. I did it this morning. Whoo, that's nerve wracking. Um, but mostly what we're doing really is sort of cleaning up the DNC's, um, their list, because mostly it's either to voicemail or disconnected numbers. That's the majority. Mm -hmm. I made 32 calls and I talked to maybe five or six people and most of them said wrong number. I think at least one or two were lying, but most of them said wrong number. Um, I talked to two people who said they were busy, but yes, they were voting for Biden. And I didn't talk to any Trump people, so. Wow, interesting. That's, it's a little discouraging. I, I would think the Democratic Com National Committee would have it a little better than that. You know, you can't have these old numbers. Well, they, they can't keep up, you know, and it was wild because we get all of their registration information. So, you know, there's a little side column that tells you when they registered, mm -hmm. where they registered, uh, to the minute, to the minute when they were put in the system. Um, and it's wild to see like a 72-year-old who only started voting or only registered in like 2002. And the youngest one I had was, oh, they were pretty young. They were like maybe 19. Wow. I really wanted to talk to that person. I was like, oh, my God, please answer, please answer. Yeah. I would love to talk to a 19-year-old, see what they're thinking. Yeah, it would be cool. Um, and I'll mention one other thing because I really want to jump into our origin story. But um, – so a second grader tested positive for COVID-19. You know, Trump yeah. always talking about it. It's always the older folks, but, you know, um, and you may have heard, both of you may have heard that in Georgia, uh, a teenager was expelled from school because he or she took a picture of their hallway and the hallway was full of kids, not right. masks, right. just, you know, the exposure. And instead of praising the kid, you know, the kid was, really expelled for sort of exposing what was going on. Wow. Really, really sad. Also, what touched my heart, Daisy Coleman, I don't know if you, either of you know that, but there was a documentary called Daisy and, hold on for a second, Audrey and Daisy. These were two girls who basically committed suicide because of bullying. Oh. Audie, um, um, shoot, Audie Potts, Audie Potts was her name. She died. She committed suicide several years ago. Uh -huh. uh, Daisy, uh, had, you know, um, she was abused. I think when she was like, no, she she was sexually assaulted. That's what it was. Right. Yes. Um, when she was 17 years old, yeah. did the documentary, received an immense amount of bullying, you know, cyberbullying. Right. And then uh, I guess she just committed suicide maybe just a couple of days ago. And it's really yeah, 23. Uh, she was 23. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I. Wow, I'm so I'm having a very emotional reaction to that. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and I have met I met her. Um, <gasps> you met her. Oh boy, this is a whole sidetrack. But um as part uh, of my I didn't, my, mean trick, I didn't mean to trigger you, but please go. Oh no, 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 no. No. Uh, um let me just really quickly you know sort of process this in front of the camera so you know why I have, I'm having this reaction yes. um, when when Audrey Pot committed suicide uh, so as as Reg knows my day job is I'm a lawyer um, ah. we, we started a, um, a pro bono uh, what we call a know your rights uh, program for teens in the Bay Area to mm -hmm. um, educate them about their rights and responsibilities around social media and sexual misconduct and bullying and Audrey Potts was our um, the reason that the program came about. 
Um, and so in that program, we've taught, I think at this point, it's over 18,000 kids. We go into high schools and we talk to them about those things as well as hate crimes. And, um, and you know, the, pro the program has morphed over the last four years. But a couple of years ago, I met Daisy after the, um, after the uh, documentary came out. And mm -hmm. wow, I'm, I'm really stunned. She was uh, such a an incredibly poised yeah. um, and 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 beautiful spokesperson for what had happened to her, and she right. was kind of Audrey was the was the the tale of the you know sort of the bad outcome, right? And, and Daisy was kind of this you know this paragon of hope. So that's just that's really really yeah. incredibly sad. I saw yeah. a, when I heard the story, I saw a clip, and they played a clip of her speaking about how she was moving on it did sound hopeful yeah it's very sad and uh, you know it should be a reminder that women i mean you know we don't talk because george ford has sort of taken over but the me too movement is still still alive and active and yes you know we should know what women go through and you and i talk about it all the time norman you know as men i don't even think of myself having privilege but right there's a certain privilege that um that i have as a man i don't have to worry about you know um walking around late at night or getting right. raped or something like that or you know being objectified you know when i walk into the office and that's something that you know that you may have to do with stacy and also we talked about the privilege that yesterday you and i were talking stacy that you have that you know that i don't necessarily have but there right. there's all sorts of privilege and we don't control we didn't create the privilege that we have we have to sort of deal with it but little girl i mean girls go through so much here's a question for you stacy i mean you have a daughter um what what conversations have you and your daughter had regarding just the me too movement and you know th there's harvey weinstein and uh, r kelly and um bill cosby who's in jail right now yeah just how, mean, to how to function as a woman yeah so we we talk about it a lot and and and, and you know actually the this program has been a great jumping off point because I have very strong feelings that, um, you know, we talk about when we go into our class that we're talking to three categories of people. We're talking to uh, people who have potentially or actually been victims of uh, either sexual assault or bullying or hate crimes. Um, and we talk to people that have done those crimes, the perpetrators or the, you know, the, the offenders. And then we talk to people that are kind of in the middle, that have never done either one, they're just kind of on the fence. The, and we call those people the bystanders. And my belief is that um, we can change all the, the, the lives of all three of those categories of people. Um, we can empower the victims to know that they have legal rights, to understand how to, how to preserve those rights, and to hopefully, and I know Reg, you'll understand this, to create a, a nurturing environment within law enforcement and uh, so that people come forward, they feel valued, they feel like it's not gonna be a waste of their time to come forward. Daisy suffered some really horrible treatment from the, from the cops and if you saw the documentary, I mean the sheriff in, the, in that documentary is, is probably, is, comes off as a worse bad guy than the bad guys. Um, and so, I, you know, as far as my daughter goes, um, you know, I've just been very honest with her from the beginning about social media, the uses of social media, and tried to uh, start at the beginning. I mean, the facts are that kids as young as, 
I mean, these days, probably five, but you know, by 12 or 13, this for girls, you know, the statistics are by, you know, 40% of them maybe have already sent a sext. And so are you going to walk into that classroom and tell them don't ever send a sext? If you do, that's it. You know, you're, you can't do that because you've got already kids that have already done that. So it's, it's a little bit about both, I guess, again, empowering them to know that something's against the law. And I think that's really important for bystanders because often, and George Floyd comes to mind here, um, you know, the worst crimes that we see are ones where people are standing by and they don't know what to do or they don't know what the law is. And in the George Floyd case, I think you, we, we all knew what the, what the law was. I don't mean to say that that was an obvious abuse of power, yeah. but in a situation where someone's being harassed and, and somebody thinks it's funny, you know, and, and you're standing there and you're not doing anything, what is your responsibility in that circumstance? And so we spend a lot of time on that, especially in helping kids to understand that it's okay to say no and to mm -hmm. allowing them to articulate, hey man, I don't want to be involved in this because you know what? I could be a an accomplice to this crime and maybe I want to go to college and maybe that's going to, you know, that college isn't going to let me in because I was an accomplice and no, I didn't rape this person, but I shut the door or I stood there and laughed. Right. And, and the law is changing as far as what is required. Uh, to be an accomplice in that situation. And so we talk a lot with the kids about, well, you know, what if you just like something that's racist or sexist or shows abuse? I mean, if you just thumbs up it on, you know, on Facebook, well, the kids know a lot about First Amendment rights, but not so much about encouraging a crime. And so yeah, yeah. Just, just to finish this off, like a, one of the real life examples we use is now you have Periscope and these other live streaming videos and you have situations where crimes are being committed and, and the people filming the crimes have said that they continued filming because they saw how many likes they got. And at that right. point, are the people that are liking it part of the problem? You know, I say yes, the law is a little more unsettled, but, um, but yeah, so we, talk, we sort of talk about this stuff all the time and I could, you know, I could talk about this stuff for, for forever, but it's, uh, I think it's, you know, it, it is to me part of all of what's happening right now, Me Too, BLM, uh, is that we're just, we're kind of churning around and we're trying to figure out how to, how to address all these things. And it really is good when things get to be more in the public. And I hope that people don't uh, get sort of tired of hearing about it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we need to continue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think awareness is so, so important. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, if you're idle or if you're just watching, you're, you're almost like a co-conspirator. I mean, you know, you have to, you either take action or, or uh, you have to, I mean, it's almost, I forget the, uh, what the effect is. Uh, it was a woman who, we talked about this before, Norman, uh, there was a woman in the 60s, she was raped. Uh, New York, yeah. Uh, is it Kitty, Kitty? Jane uh, Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. I'm sure you've heard about that, Stacey, where there were uh, bystanders who were in their apartment. There was an apartment building of people. There were windows facing this Yeah, she screamed and... Right, exactly. They listened to her scream for like hours and hours and nobody came out because everyone either said, well, someone else will figure it out or I don't want to be involved. And of course she died. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you have to, you have to be proactive. Um, um, as far as law enforcement is concerned, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we, as far, like I work in the district attorney's office, we have attorneys who are very, very mindful of how we treat our victims. 
to make sure they are, you know, that they feel um, in, a, in a warm environment. They, they, they feel that they're not just going to take the stand and, you know, nothing's going to happen. Um, and, and of course, law enforcement, you know, the cops, you know, they're even on, doing training, sensitivity training to say, hey, listen, you know, we're, we're here for you. And also uh, kids need to be trained as to, hey, uh, just because I filmed somebody, it's not about the likes, but it's about really just being compassionate. We also talked about how theater, you know, like I, I've always felt that theater allows me and I think anyone involved in theater to have compassion about other individuals because we already, we're always stepping into someone else's shoes. So I may not be a woman, but if I see a theater or if I'm part of a production where we talk about these issues, then I'll be in, enlightened uh, as a person. And so, uh, you know, I think all of these things are important. Well, it's funny. I saw on Twitter, um, there's a woman I follow on Twitter. I love her, the feminist next door. She's, <laughs> she's wonderful. Um, and, you know, and she basically has made herself a target so that stuff comes at her and she has very common sense, but often for a man illuminating, you know, perspective. So there's been this big debate about, there was a conversation apparently going on about um, men stepping in and not letting things happen in front of them. And the guy responding kind of was like, so you want the women to protect themselves and be safe, but you want me to step in where this is a threatening situation. How am I supposed to do that? And her quick response back was, if you're wondering how to de-escalate a situation, you might pay attention to how women do it since that's what they've been doing for millennia. <laughs> there you go. And I was like, boom. <laughs> oh, my brain just exploded. I loved it. Yeah. It's so sad. I'm glad to see you laughing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very sad situation, but I think as the generations become more and more, the good old boy and the macho macho boys will fade away and we'll have more sensitive. I mean, I remember my sister once called me metrosexual. I had no idea what that meant. But she basically meant the sensitive man, you know, the man who really cares and who will check in. You know, we talk about that in theater all the time. Checking in. Is it okay to do this? Is it okay for that? And checking in is something that can go beyond theater and should be, you know, a sort of a standardized thing for all of us because uh, it just makes, you know, the world better. Um, yeah, and with that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, we can segue into an origin story for Stacey Cray. But before we do that, I'm going to play uh, your music, a little, uh, a bit of your music from Love the Struggle. This is a wonderful hey. song called Tool. Let me dictate, manipulate the shape we take. So let me drill it in, because they will hammer you. Oh yeah, they'll try to screw you, wrench you out of your dreams. Men make the rules, branded as fools, right for abuse. Find your vibrant truth, don't be a tool, don't get you. That is cool. Wow. I love the struggle. Yeah, really, really cool. So, um, Stacy, you know that that's just fantastic. That's uh, one of one of your songs. I imagine you wrote that. Yeah, you and I wrote it together. Uh, and and the singer was uh, Grace McLean, who's a wonderful uh, Broadway actress um, who is 
uh, also a songwriter herself and really brought some amazing energy to the song. So I just want to thank her because it's fine. That's, that's what we were doing right before COVID was recording Grace and some other folks. Um, and it's, it's fun to hear the, the songs done and mixed and, and being played. So yeah, that song uh, is kind of midway through the first act and it's Beauvoir uh, talking to her students, her female students. She's been basically told to go in and and teach the you know the the um traditional text in philosophy and she kind of closes the books and is like look girls i'm gonna i'm gonna teach you about the way life really works and so that's that's her song it's the beginning mm -hmm. i guess of her of her um her feminist awakening is what i would say yeah, no, 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 it's awesome. And I love the fact, I mean, obviously, you know, the Sartre Beauvoir story goes back from, I think they met, I'm not sure, in maybe in the 30s or uh, maybe 1929. even. 1929. 1929. Uh -huh. But of course, you're mixing in sort of modern music. I mean, that song, I mean, Beyonce could sing that. Yeah. That's, an, that's an F sharp, right? I think that's the key. Yep. Yep. Good. The ear still works. Um, <laughs> tell, tell us an origin story. Uh, how did you get involved in theater? Where were you born and raised and all that stuff? Let's go from the very beginning. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, born in New York City. And, uh -huh. uh, then, but then moved away very quickly. My parents uh, essentially kind of went bankrupt and then moved back home to, uh, after a couple of other stops, to Omaha, Nebraska. So I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska until I was 18. Then I went to college in Texas which was a whole other uh, awakening. That's where I studied philosophy. I I'm, I'm, had some brilliant professors where I went to school, uh, fell in love with philosophy, uh, decided I wanted to get a PhD, and then started thinking about how hard it was to get a job <laughs> as a professor. <laughs> and I was like, well, what else could I do? And then that's when I was said, all right, well, I guess I could go to law school because you don't really need <laughs> any any special expertise for that. So then I, I went to law school at Berkeley uh, and then ended up just loved the Bay Area and stayed. My um, interaction with theater came through the church when I was a kid. Uh, I was in the church choir. My mom wrote a bunch of liturgical musicals and adaptations of children's fairy tales. And when I was a kid, she was the playwright in residence at our uh, wonderful local children's theater. Um, and so I sang and I, uh, but I never wrote a song and I, I, I didn't play guitar. And then when I was about 30, I got a guitar and I started just playing chords. And I was just fascinated by the whole idea of how you put, I had never really thought about how you put music together before. And then I got, super into into theory for a while you know not super complicated you and i've talked about that not jazz theory or anything like just sure. kind of more yeah. simple yeah. theory and um and 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 really wrote a song before i knew what i was doing if that makes any sense and and then just fell in love with it particularly as a way to communicate ideas with people and communicate things about myself uh including about philosophy that i didn't feel i could do in conversation and so I often tell people now, like, you want to know who I am? We can go at, off for two weeks together and try to get to know each other, or I can play you one song that I've written. And that will give you a better understanding of kind of who I am and, and what, what emotions exist in me. And I believe in music as this um, incredible, uh, you know, very primal 
language that I think I think neurology will eventually show is just has these um, amazing ways to connect us with, with ourselves and with each other uh, in a way that just blows all verbal communication out of the water. Um, so that's my how I got into music. And then, um, you know, I wrote a couple of albums uh, and had, you know, some local success here. Um, and then I got to the point where I really wanted to write some songs on a theme. I was writing pop songs. Um, and I sort of thought, well, maybe I could do something in musical theater. And I thought, well, I have to write about philosophy because that's something I know something about. Um, and something that's deeply interesting to me. So I read this book called um, The Great Philosophers Who Failed at Love, which was very funny. It was like a page of biography for, you know, of Aristotle and then a page of what he did in his real life. Like, you know, he had five wives and he, you know, or he, you know, some, some, of the, some of the people had, you know, strangled their wives. I mean, it was very dramatic. And then I got to the chapter on Sartre and Beauvoir. And I had studied them both in college and I really never had focused at all on their relationship. And frankly, I had not focused on Beauvoir very much at all. I found her, when I read her in college, to be absolutely impenetrable. So I, but I loved Sartre and I loved being in nothingness. Um, and when I realized what the relationship was and more importantly, that the things that I had read in college that were their quote unquote philosophical works were actually autobiographical and were really a lot about their own relationship and their relationship with other people. Um, that's when I got sort of hooked. And then I read Hazel Rowley's biography about uh, Sartre and Beauvoir and mentioned her because she also wrote a biography of Richard Wright. Um, and I, the story is just so incredibly colorful that what it was- the, Wait a minute, who was the writer? Hazel Rowley, you should know her. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Her, Richard Talibert focused on her on uh, yep. Before the Dream. Yep, yes. So she wrote a wonderful biography about the two of them. And um, and again, and, it was, and it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's gossipy. It's, it's fun. Uh, it's not that serious, but it's very, very gossipy and, um, and interesting. And talked a lot about the other people, the other characters in their lives. Um, and so, and I really started focusing a lot on, and the other thing to say is that when I read Being in Nothingness as a college student, I, I was in, happened to be doing a study abroad thing where I was in London and I had to do, I, it was like a tutorial system over there. We had two people in the class and I had to teach the class once every two weeks for three hours. And so we got really deeply into this book in a way that I would never would have in the States. And uh, Sartre's vision of love is pretty pessimistic and grim. And, um, and it always haunted me. And I always felt like there wasn't something, there was something that was just a little bit off about it, but I didn't know what. Mm -hmm. And I realized in researching this that, that I think that Beauvoir kind of had the antidote to that. And so uh -huh. I became very interested in that. So th that was kind of the general, things that were swimming around in my head. I knew Yair from, he was uh, in my band and, and we had worked together on some co-writing. We were in a band together and went to him and said, I have this crazy idea about writing this musical, but I, but I kind of want a male perspective. I, I don't really want to be writing this all by myself without kind of a colleague. And he's also brilliant musically. You know, would you, would you do this with me? And he was like, sure. So that's how we, that's how we began. That's awesome. I did have a, uh, you know, you, 
It's like I asked one question and boom, and, and which is awesome. I, I really, uh, but I did have some questions um, because when you talk about, I was reading to to um, to to sort of uh, prepare myself for the the interview. I was reading a little bit about Sartre, you know, sort of going back, and it's interesting. In Wikipedia, it says um, the conflict. According to Sartre, Sartre believes the conflict between oppressive, spiritually destructive conformity and an authentic way of being became the dominant theme of Sartre's early work. And uh, he, he talked about being in nothingness. And um, and also, I told you when I was at, at, um, at Duke Ellington School of the Arts as a 15-year-old, our teacher gave us uh, nausea, which was heavy, heavy lifting for a young kid. But it sounds like that's, I mean, it sounds like that's something that you believe as well. I mean, do you think that, you know, one of the issues with, um, I guess, conformity or I guess in life in general, as, as we try to maneuver in, in today's lives, is trying to conform, is trying to be, you know, we're placed into a box and we try to do the things that other people want us to do. And we are trying to say, no, I've got to figure out who I am mm. without being put into the box. Would that be, is, is, is that your philosophy? Do you think that's Sartre's philosophy, Stacey? Yeah, I think, I think Sartre's philosophy would be essentially, um, the way he put it was uh, existence precedes essence. That is, we, we are here and we are living beings and we are what we are before we can be defined as, as what we are, which is not to say that we don't, that we totally ignored historical circumstances or biographical circumstances. I'm a woman, I was born in New York City in that year, et cetera. But what he did believe was that you can overcome the, the stereotypes, I guess, about the way in which you're supposed to behave in that. He, he was very, I think it, 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 it helps me sometimes to think about it in the sense of, he was very anti-Freudian. He was very anti the idea that because these things happen to you, that's why you are the way that you are and you can't yeah. change it or you're not able to do it. I was just going to say, it reminds me a lot of Richard Wright, like his writing in uh, Native Son and, and in Black Boy to me is a lot about, um, about the circumstances he finds himself in. And then a lot, especially in Black Boy, you know, just kind of like understanding that people expect him to behave in a certain way. Right. You know, white people, his family, his mother, his grandmother, all these right. people expect certain things. And he's smart enough to know he can give them to him, right? I mean, he, if he wants to, but he doesn't want to. He wants to be his own person. And to me, he's a great example of someone who kind of lived that life of coming from a certain demographic where, you know, statistics said, maybe Freud would say, et cetera, you're going to end up like this. And he said, I understand the constraints I'm faced with, but I am going to fight those. And I'm going to try to be someone else that is unique. And so that I think is, is his, and yes, I agree with that. I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. I don't agree with everything that the existentialists have said, mm. but I think once you, once you begin to give up on your own ability to change and to learn and to have curiosity about ways in which you can be a different person, life becomes pretty dull. And of course right. there are obstacles, but I think um, having an attitude that you can that you can change things on a micro level and on a macro level is to to me it feels true. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had a couple of thoughts. I didn't want to cut in uh, Norman, but oh, it's really, there are some people who believe in predestination or let's say, well, if you were born in, let's say the ghetto, if you're born in a public assistance housing project, then this is your trajectory. This is where you're going to be. And, you know, I think the, the magic of if you want to deal with existentialism is no, you, you can break out of that. You could be whatever you want to be, but you have to strip yourself. You almost have to, you know, make yourself into a blank sheet of paper to say, okay, let me, do, who cares what the world says that I am? Let me redefine who I am. I mean, we've had a couple of uh, individuals who are transgendered, you know, where they were like, hey, the world saw me as this gender or as this person. And I said, no, I, I must see myself as something different. And there's something liberating about that where you can say, I'm getting out of that box. And uh, of course, Richard Wright is our favorite subject and we talk about it all the time, that nauseam. Um, well, I love the way that, that um, so right in that same way, he said, I see this, I identify with this, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And Sartre just cuts him down and says, no, Richard, I'm actually flipping the equation in this sense. You are the oppressor. And he was just so horrified. Yeah, that would be in my play. I mean, that's my interpretation of how he dealt with um, Baldwin and uh, Richard. But, um, I, you know, uh, I'll yeah, always, I, I, I think, that's, I think that's right. And it's, and it's, and it's, you know, we all, um, there was a funny book that was written, uh, and I don't know where I got this quote or where, what the book is, but the book is, um, mistakes were made, but not by me. And it, it reminds me of that. Like, you know, you can be this amazing person like Richard Wright was the first of, to do many things, right? right. Uh, and to, and to do it in his own way. And, um, you know, I sort of see both sides. I see James's side too, right? You right, know? yeah, gotta, it's hard not like to. talking to everybody here, what do we say? <laughs> Part of the reason I, I don't delve too much into politics or saying things on Twitter because I'm saying that to everybody. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff I'd say to just you guys, but you know, what would I say to everybody? And I think James Baldwin was more in that, like, okay, we, we gotta think about the impact of our words. And I don't think it's the, right. Wright didn't think about that. I think he was coming. I I find him to be one of the most honest writers that I've yeah. maybe ever read. You know, just in kind of this is how it is. This is how I feel, and I'm just laying it out there. And 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 I think Baldwin was more thoughtful about about trying to change the world. I mean, at least in the in initial writings. I, I I'm talking really about the stuff that I've read of his, which is the earlier. I've focused sure. definitely right on the earlier stuff because that's what what uh intersects with Beauvoir and 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 so anyway that's no no no. I totally understand and you know you have to, so it's the balance between hey I've got to think about myself and who I am my being but also my relationship to the world uh because if you if you're not careful you can delve you can delve into Ayn Rand territory you know I'm sure you've studied a great deal about Ayn Rand right, where right, it's about right. me 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 right. and you know, if it doesn't suit me, then the hell with everything else, which is right. very, very, I mean, there's some Republicans who love Ayn Rand. Well, well we just missed an opportunity. Um, one of the cult, you know, one of the uh, current events that we didn't talk about, 75th anniversary of Hiroshima. Oh. Um, and I guess today oh. is the, uh, is the, is Nagasaki. Um, wow. And apparently there is a film. Now I want to find this film because the scientists were so horrified at what they had done that they got in touch with Lana Turner, of all people, to oh. talk to Hollywood about making a movie about this. And they tried to, but Washington got involved, the military got involved, and so they kind of tweaked it. They were so worried about it, they talked to Ayn Rand 
and got her to write a script, which was so horrible, nobody ever made that movie. <laughs> Funny. Wow. Here's, another, uh, here's a question for you, Stacey. Um, the, the pro talk to us about the process of doing the musical and also getting involved in theater. I mean, I mean, you, so you're, are you a lawyer? I am. I'm, I'm a lawyer. So I do that, you know, to, to pay the bills until I stray get rich on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's fantastic. I mean, you are, I mean, it's, you're almost a Renaissance woman. You know, there are certain individuals who they grab their law degree and they get into the practice or whatever they're doing. And that's basically it. And then they, you know, go home and or go on vacation. But, you know, right. art has been something that has really grabbed onto you. Yeah. But talk to us about the process uh, because you sort of had to learn both how to create music and then creating a musical because that's a whole different creature. And then writing a play. I mean, uh, how difficult, how easy was that process? So, you know, it was very piecemeal for me in the sense that I've been writing music for in songs for more than 20 years. And that was a process that was first, uh, you know, very much internal. I never thought I'd share my songs with anyone. And then I got, and I think, I always think of art as having these two components. There's the component of, um, of just expressing the thing because you need to get it out and you want to get it out. And then there's the second part, which is the sharing with other people. And I was very enamored and still am of the self-expression part and the like, I, there's nothing I love more than just being knee deep in a song or in, in a scene and not thinking about where it's gonna go or who, you know, how am I gonna share it? With the music, um, I once I started sharing with people, I realized that I needed, uh, I needed feedback. Um, I needed more education. And so I found myself, motorcycle, uh, I found myself uh, mentors uh, to help me with songwriting, and I did a lot of songwriting. I've been in a lot of songwriting workshops and songwriting salons, and I did that for years until I thought about writing a musical. And I think when I when I decided to write the musical, um, you know, it was more about, I guess, at a certain level, it it didn't seem that hard. I, I think I was stupid. <laughs> Because mm. I read musicals and, you know, Reggie probably, and Norman, you as well, uh, you know, many of them, the book part, uh, you know, which really isn't that strong. It's, it's, it's a bunch of dialogue kind of connecting songs together. And I knew I could write songs and I knew I could write songs that were meaningful to me and that were philosophical because that was really all that I had ever written. Um, and I also had so much material to work with in terms of ideas, these guys, you know, they talk for chapters and chapters about shame and about jealousy. Right. And about yes. Love and about all these things. It's like, how could you not, you know, it's like, it's not like there's no ideas out there. So that process, it started, um, I mean, we did it, we did, our process was a little bit different than many. Once I had identified that we wanted to do this, I went through, I did song spotting. You know, I basically went through and said, okay, what do I, I want to write a song about shame? I want to write a song about jealousy. And then I did a chronology of their lives and realized at some point you got to throw the chronology out the window because yes. it doesn't help, right? Right. And, and especially with 50 years of this couple. And then we started with songs. Um, so we had seen uh, I kind of a general plot outline and but then the songs were in there and then we started with songs and the first song that we wrote was Love the Struggle 
and then which is a song about love and conflict and uh, male feel female perspective in this case the female's perspective she's a prostitute so she's got her own view of how love works um and then we and then we wrote i think shame was next um and again those were the the scenes in in being in nothingness uh about shame and about jealousy are are so were so memorable to me that it was really easy to write the music and the way that we worked on the music was uh differed from song to song sometimes we started with lyrics first sometimes we just started with a vibe of like what does shame sound like um and so that so and it's gone through iterations i mean Reg, you saw the very first performance of a, when, where we ever went live at all. And what I struggled with most uh, was trying to distill what this ginormous project into 20 minutes and make it something that, yeah, wow. that was yeah. like- well, that's Musical Cafe, you know, right, 20, that's that, what you get. That could make sense to an audience, right? I mean, you know, that was that felt like, a bit like a musical and you know i think we did a pretty fair i mean we had we had some amazing actors you remember who was sartre it was dave abrams who has now won three tba awards uh and he was incredible and liz curtis was our beauvoir so we had elizabeth curtis wow i was on stage with her we did um shucks we, it was um we did civil war christmas together wow small world go ahead yes yes and i came to see that oh you saw that. me on stage i I must have not known that you were in it. I saw Liz there. How could I have not known that? Anyway, it was a great, great show. Yeah. yeah did, didn't you see a black, uh, black union guy with uh, playing a guitar? <laughs> I mean, yes, I did. Yes, yeah, there, did. there, that was me. How could I so, not? That's bizarre. Anyway, so um, anyway, that's that's a, that's how the process went. Yeah. So, um, uh, are you, did you, are you, do you, are you working with like directors? Are you, is there, is there a, um, why don't you tell us where, where things are right now with Love the Struggle, the, the musical? Yeah. So we've done a number of those kinds of things where it's been, um, you know, sort of a developmental production or workshop. It's been less than the entire show. The most Folsom one that we did was in New York with Equity Actors as part of a, a festival in New York. Um, and we did kind of the first act and we had full choreography. Uh, and it was amazing. And we worked with an amazing director out there who had, who had done Broadway as an assistant director and learned a ton about the show. Um, since then, we've done uh, more of these uh, kind of, um, again, like just a few... 30 minutes of the show uh, for developmental purposes. Um, and then we um, we are making recordings. We've made these recordings with these Broadway folks. And the next step for us, we think is a developmental reading, um, hopefully at a, at a theater. Um, sorry, not a developmental reading, a real developmental production. Readings are difficult for this show because a lot of it's very visual. That's been Stacy, there. She may be there. She's frozen. Yeah. That's kind of the. the, the we we, we lost the meantime, that last I bit. Think what I think is. Oh, so I said, um, you know, we'd like to do it, have a developmental production at a regional theater or a local theater. Yeah. Um, and we'd also love to eventually have it be commercial and, and yeah. you know, play it somewhere sounds, in New York. It sounds like you're yeah. shopping for a company. Are you shopping for a company or a producer? Yeah, absolutely. 
You got any ideas? I hear you. No, I, I totally hear you. I had a question for you, Norman. I wanted to bring you in because mm. talking about existentialism and you know, getting out of the conformity of life, you know, because that's what Sartre, you know, was talking about. It, it applies in theater too, you know, like let's say you have a student, you know, as you have an actor walking on the stage, isn't the, isn't the philosophy sort of removing, you know, your, sure, you can, you can take parts of yourself, you know, your past lives or whatever and apply it to on stage, but really if you have to be uh, Shakespearean production, you can't be, you know, a kid from the ghetto or whatever. You sort of have to strip a little bit of yourself away. I mean, what do you think about that, Norman? I mean, do you... Well, so it's funny because as we keep talking around Sartre, I, and I love, um, I read a cute um, graphic that did a good job of very lightly, graphic novel did a good job of very lightly touching on the man and these ideas. And what I love about it is the ideas are so simple. They're so basic that it's easy to lose them. And it's easy to even understand, wait a minute, what is he talking about? If you say nothingness, to, to try to grasp with these concepts, you get big. And so you can see how his brain would just shut down. <laughs> he would lose his mind. And, and it took me, I had to read back. I went, wait a minute. Oh, okay, you barely kind of reference this, but the man lost his mind for a while and then he came back. There's something so immediate about existentialism that really relates to theater. A guy walking down a street is a guy walking down the street. It doesn't matter what era, what place, whatever. It's a guy walking down the street. So the actor has to bring that to life. And the play that I think, one of the plays that does it so well, which is a very existential play, is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, yeah, where yeah, you yeah. open with two actors walking on stage one guy flipping a coin and the other guy just saying heads. And they just keep going for pages. And how do you make that real? Well, you can tell that what the playwright wants is for you to make a very immediate experience that these two people are grappling with that eventually explodes into this is the question of the play. Where are we, who are we, and what are we doing? So you can take on these big concepts, but for the actor, you really have to bring it down to why am I flipping the coin again? <laughs> you know, and why am I just calling it out? You could flatten that to a really boring thing, but that's the play that made me realize why live theater is still meaningful because I sat there just going, oh my God, when I read the script, I was like, there's, there's almost nothing here. <laughs> yeah, it, it also reminds me of uh, No Exit. Um, I think, yes. I forget who, who wrote that. Was that's that Star yeah, 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 yeah. No, no exit. And um, there's actually a wonderful Twilight Zone episode that sort of exit, echoes no exit. Uh, five characters in a room. I think they're searching for an exit. And one is, to make a long story short, they're toys. They don't right. know they're toys. And, oh, my God, I have to see this. It sounds amazing. Know, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous piece. Yeah, no, it's actually awesome. Uh, Stacey, I want to get back to you because... Simone de Beauvoir, I keep on screwing that name up. It's so interesting. I mean, I tried touching on to the relationship between a genius and the woman who has to sort of be on the sideline, but, you know, wants to be a partner, but is sidetracked. I mean, Richard, I dealt with it with Richard and Ellen, but also a good friend of mine, um, um, Scott Munson, he wrote a piece based on Bertolt Brecht. And Brecht reminds me a lot of... of um, of Sartre in that, you know, he wrote at a very difficult time and he was considered a genius and uh, he wrote about, you know, big things. 
but he also had a woman on the side and they had a sort of a relationship where she was sort of, I mean, we're dealing with women who are geniuses in their own right, but they take on the role of, um, well, I've got to step, I've got to step one step behind for the man. I mean, is that the story of Simone de Beauvoir? I, I'm not, no, I don't know. It's interesting because I think I think it's changed over time, and and scholars have their own view of it. And if you were like if you were at a Beauvoir conference, you know there'd be seventy five different factions of who believed what about their relationship. Um, what I can say is that she, um, you know, she held her own for sure with him intellectually. And mm -hmm. when the, and, and the funny thing is. They both, they graduated the same year from the Sorbonne and, um, but Simone was the ninth women, woman ever admitted and the, and the youngest woman ever. And they finished first and second and Sartre was first, but he had failed the year before because nobody could understand what he was talking about. Right. And, um, and then she, and then the judges said later, they interviewed them because they were both famous by that point. And the one, you know, at least one of the judges said, well, you know what, we, we really gave him the prize because he was a man and we knew that he'd make a name for himself. And what was she going to do? She was just going to go get a job teaching. Mm -hmm. So, so she had that. Um, and she definitely had a, what I would call, you know, a mid-century sensibility about a woman's place. Although in France, I would say it was a little different. Um, but I never, she, she, Sartre would never belittled her. I don't think he ever belittled her. I think he always uh, pushed her towards her talent. He encouraged her to write. He encouraged her to uh, continue her intellectual pursuits. She edited his works uh, until she died. He edited her works. So there was, he, and he was certainly more famous in the beginning. But at the end, she was more famous. She became, you know, when he was sort of, you know, there was this kind of lovely for a play, right? The, the characters, one character's going up, the other character's going down, and then, in the, you know, in the, the other act, it goes this, the other way. By the, you know, after the second sex was published and in the 60s, Beauvoir was very much sought after because of the second sex. And, and Sartre had kind of fallen away a little bit certainly for philosophy. So mm -hmm. these days it's very hard to find, for example, philosophy department in America that teaches uh, existentialism and that teaches Sartre. I mean, it's not, uh, some people don't consider it kind of real philosophy. Um, so I, I think that, um, and then they have this weird relationship, right? This, this kind right. of polyamorous relationship where uh, neither one was ever really beholden to the other. Um, so I never, and, and you'll find people differ on this, Reg, and, you know, there are plenty of people who feel like Beauvoir, you know, cast herself aside for Sartre. I don't, I don't feel that way about her. I think mm -hmm. she, she chose what she wanted to do, and I don't think that he ever stopped her from being creative and, and pursuing her dreams as a writer. Yeah, it's just so sad. It sounds like, because I know that Sartre won a Pulitzer Prize, it sounds like de Beauvoir could have easily won a Pulitzer on, in her own right if she lived in, you know, a different era, if she lived in today's era. Uh, because it sounds like she was just as brilliant, if yeah, not she, more, than uh, Sartre. She did win a, um, she won some prizes in France. I mean, the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that, is their politics. I mean, that to me explains a lot of why they have kind of fallen by the wayside in the United States. I mean, they were both very staunch, for a while they were communists, then they were very staunch socialists. Um, and, and that sort of 
philosophy, you know, in the 80s, right? It, mm-hmm. it didn't get a lot of traction here. Um, so, so there's that, that piece as well. But she, there are a lot of people who think that in the long run, she will be much more widely remembered than he will. Um, and I don't think that she felt ignored. I mean, she was the most famous female intellectual in, in France almost her entire adult life. So I think she's, um, you know, she, she's not as well known in America as she should be because she really is the grandmother of, of Steinem and Bretty Friedan and all, all of those women. Oh, interesting. She was part of the women's movement even before then. Wow. Wow. I didn't know way, that. Way before. So the second sex, which is the book that, uh, you know, I keep referencing black boy and that's Richard Wright's book because, um, he wrote it in, I think, 45. And, um, and the second sex came out in 49. And they were friends by then. Um, and, and there's a lot of similarities. So if you haven't read the second sex, uh, it's not autobiographical in, in that sense, her book, but it's very much about um, how do I, how can I, how am I in the world as a woman? You know, whereas I think uh, Richard was, how am, how am I, how can I be as a black man in the South? Um, and that book, uh, is absolutely the Bible of feminism and and read by many, many feminists in the United States and, um, Friedan and Steinem, those guys were mid to late sixties. So 20 years later, she was writing things about how women would, you know, needed to be independent, how, if they just had equal footing that, um, you know, gender relations would be much more positive, that the thing that was really holding women back where she went through a list of things, you know, there's biology, there's laws, there's myths about women and what they can and can't do. There's stories about women and what they can and can't do. Um, And there's men holding women down. And one of the really interesting things that I think is a parallel to, to Richard Wright again is she viewed women as the, the other, they're not, you know, nothing is written for them. Society wasn't molded around them. So society was molded around men and their way of thinking and the way that they wanted things to be. And so women were written out of the law and couldn't in that, at that period in France own property uh, or have an abortion or, um, you know, have really any kind of autonomy at all. Um, and that those ideas uh, really still found the feminist movement that really only got underway in that second wave in the late 60s. Um, I, I wonder if, because um, I know Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique, and I'm not sure when she wrote that, but it sounds like, she, was she, do you think she was motivated by Simone de Beauvoir, or do you think that happened separately? I don't know if you... There's, there's so much, there. you know, there's a lot. I try not to get too deep into sort of the fights among the feminists of who did what when or who's influencing who because that stuff is really the subject of these people that spend their entire lives you know as professors uh you know studying these things and trying to figure out who influenced whom and like i said there's been there have been articles about did uh did beauvoir influence right or did right influence beauvoir right and like to me um friedan is one who i think has um has said that Beauvoir didn't influence her, but do we know if she didn't know? Steinem has been very vocal yeah. about maybe that. Maybe it was subconsciously. Maybe it was subconsciously. Yeah. Something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, Gloria Steinem, when, when Beauvoir died, wrote in the New York Times that she was the single most important woman in the history of femi feminism in the 20th century. Mm, yeah, but there you go. She's given it up for, for Beauvoir. But as far as the other feminists, I don't, I don't know them as well. And then, and then there, are, there are issues, too. You know, Beauvoir wasn't perfect, right? So she was doing this all from her own little bubble. And there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism about her for not seeing deeply into, enough into specific problems of women because of race and because of uh, their economic circumstances and because of their, um, their sexual orientation. You know, she really, she did look at it from sort of a white European uh, perspective, although she was, you know, she was smart enough. Richard was her friend at that point. She did right. talk some about race, uh, but I think these days she would be held to that, you know, the standards that we see. And to me, to me, it's sort of a, setting when we try to take people outside of their own historical context and judge them by today's standards in terms of right. what they should have said or what's politically correct now um i think she did a generally good job yeah, yeah. yeah obviously you can't control what you know what environment or what era you come from it, it's so interesting you're absolutely right i think you know Wright did talk about the black man living in a foreign world we even talked about you know off off mic about uh the invisible man ralph ellison and yeah. I, I had mentioned how um, I just don't know if that's applicable to today's world because, you know, with social media and guys like uh, P. Diddy and uh, Jay-Z or whatever, is there such a thing as the invisible man or, you know, or, or even, you know, can a woman really look at herself as an alien to a world created by men when you have Beyonce and, you know, other women and influencers and all that sort of stuff and even Michelle Obama? Um, Oprah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it sounds like it, it all began, it, you know, the source, you know, really began with uh, Simone. Um, I mean, we could talk about Susan B. Anthony and some of oh, the yeah. interrogation. She, and, yeah. she would say that she stood on the shoulders of giants and, and such. But right. I do think that her her um, her continuing influence is really and um, is is not given enough credit in in the United States um, as far yeah, as. Agreed. Um, I mean, really, as far and and Sartre as well, as far as mores go, as far as Americans' feelings about freedom, about responsibility, about the way in which we interact with other people, their their ideas are still very modern. Um, and and I think when you hear people like because this is a play somewhat about uh, polyamory, you know, when I go and talk to young people about um, their you know, people in college, for example, about their views on this and their views on love. Um, the the views of Sartre and Beauvoir really resonate with them still as being very culturally relevant and uh, and thoughtful. And so part of the part of the impetus be behind making this play, right, was uh, you know, certainly as a young person, you get into romantic and love relationships, and and you get hurt or you hurt other people. And one of the beauties of theater, I know Reg will agree because we talked about this a little bit, is that it allows you to get outside of your own skin and experience things, even as an audience member or as a director or as an actor or as a writer, that you don't otherwise have to experience and to, um, and to work through those things in your head and in your emotions so that you don't get into a situation where you go, for example, Oh no! I think it'd be great to have you know to have a polyamorous relationship and have five girlfriends at the same time, and you don't think about what's going to happen when jealousy comes into that, and maybe it's your own jealousy, 
and are you going to, are you going to end up hurting someone or changing their life in a way that's, um, that's negative before you've really even thought through how these things are going to work in a practical world. Yeah, no, no, I totally understand. And, um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's really, really awesome. And I, I can't wait to see where love the struggle goes in the future. One last question before we wrap up because it's one ten. Um, how has Bay area theater, how's it treated you? I think musical cafe really gave you a nice launch. Are you frustrated with the process? Are you happy, satisfied? Um, you know, and also, what are your next? What are your next work? I mean, you know, there's got to be something after Love the Struggle, I, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm frustrated because I haven't really, we haven't reached out that much um, to try to do things here. We've been focused on trying to get the show together, and we've had opportunities come from all different places. Right. And so um, the, the Musical Cafe, and we did their Next Stages program too, which was uh, basically um, mentored readings uh, with, uh -huh. with actors and, and, and with a, um, Ming Khan, who did The Four Immigrants, was our composer mentor, which was super fun. And Anthony Clairvaux was our uh, script consultant. Nice. Um, so, you know, I, we're at this point now where I'd love to find a Bay Area theater that would love to do this. I, I will say this, I am frustrated by what I perceive to be a lack of theaters interested in doing new musicals True. in the Bay Area. I don't think there are very many. And so unless you can sort of get into, you know, a Berkeley rap or a, a theater works, uh, it's really hard to find theaters that are committed to doing that and can and and can do it because honestly it's a, and i understand why you know it's a resource intensive right um really hard thing to do especially with a show that really needs for example as ours does choreography to bring mm -hmm. it to life i mean it's just a it's a it's a i mean you saw nia it's just a, it's a it's a lot to bring all that together and make it look good so yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you're, you're at a very good start. I mean, you already have uh, Broadway actors working with you. You're, al you're already working in New York. Uh, at least, you know, the show is got some developments there. So it's, it's on the ground. And I'm sure there are lots of individuals who are watching our podcast who are like, wow, I want to do what you're doing right now. So it's, it's motivating. It's very motivating. And uh, you should be very proud, Stacey. You've done so much, you know, um, because a lot of individuals, they go to school and, you know, they're deeply, deeply involved in the theater community. And, you know, you sort of just come in from the outside, you know, as a songwriter, as someone who's written, you know, records, and you're already, you know, getting a musical up and up and about. So you should be very, very proud. Well, ultimately, it's always, you know, that person wanting to express something. So however you got here, you got here <laughs> and you're yeah. ready for it. It's kind of great. No, yeah, it's awesome. yeah, we have to keep going. And like I said, I'm I'm really great, grateful to all the people that have helped us along the way. And I don't know where we're going next, but it does seem to me like nice things keep like this podcast, you know, keeps sort of dropping out of the sky and, you know, bringing me back in and making me feel like, oh, yeah, people do. People are interested in this. It's good. We Absolutely. Yeah. No, I've asked you several times to come on. And I'm so glad that, you know, you took the time and uh, you deserve it. Good things for good people. Shout outs, birthdays. Birthdays. Um, Miranda Ashlock is a young woman I worked with last summer on As You Like It. And her birthday, I think, is today. Uh, she uh, is a costumer. B.B. Uh, Temple is somebody I actually went to SF State with. And she moved back east. And then she and her husband started to create a whole theater scene 
I want to say Massachusetts. I can't really remember. Um, Carol Lashoff is a local playwright I've met through Playground. Jeffrey Greer, I don't think we've actually ever worked together, but he runs the, oh gosh, what's it called? Ah, it's in the city, uh, San Francisco Recovery Theater, um, which for a while was doing, they sort of uh, were doing a cabaret at a piano fight back when, you know, people actually went to places. Um, and then the bar section, they would run a cabaret, I think once a week. It was pretty cool. Uh, Guy Tataro, somebody else I went to San Francisco State, he left the country, ended up in Japan, and has been making a living as a clown, um, but I don't know what they call that in Japan, but he's been doing that kind of work, has a child, has really just sort of set roots down, still doing theater, but who would have thought coming out of college, bam, that's where I'm going. Uh, John Warren is actually the person I need to get off as soon as I can and call, because it's his birthday today. Yeah. Um, he was a... He was a director with uh, Unconditional Theater, um, and he has gone on to do a lot about social justice and theater, um, and currently teaches at Urban School in San Francisco, but um, is already looking to think about what that next thing is, and it's his birthday today. Uh, Britt Frazier is, uh, is somebody I think I first met when she was at Laney College and has gone on to be on most of the major stages in the Bay Area. She's, she's fantastic, and she also directs. Michael Cano, stage manager in the Bay Area. I haven't crossed paths with him in probably a couple of decades now, but I still hear his name out there. I hope he hears mine. Uh, Sarah Shroud is somebody else who was not a theater background person, but she and her couple of her friends got caught. Um, I think it was Afghanistan. They were hiking and they went across a border and they got grabbed. This was all in the news a few years ago. And she came back and actually started writing pieces about social justice. Um, so she did a piece a couple of years ago called The Box that got a lot of attention here. Um, her birthday's coming up this week. Darlene Miyakawa um, is a not local, uh, but stage manager who's been working all up and down the coast and beyond. Uh, Michael Orlando Trujillo, I don't know if you know him, but uh, before there was EastEnders, that crew did a show and we were in it. It was called Three Policemen. And uh, he sent me a photo a couple of years ago from it. And I was like, oh my God, we were all such babies. Kevin Ralston is somebody I know through uh, Each One Reach One. Um, actor, and he does much more than that, but that's what we did there. Um, Bernard Vosch is somebody I met as a coach for a Shakespeare play, and then I later on found out he was an actor in his own right. Michael Barrett Austin was my scene partner last summer in As You Like It. Uh, he played Orlando, the love interest of the play. Wonderful guy, and I got to just work with him on Playground's um, Best Of Festival, uh, we got to do a short piece where you barely saw his face. You actually didn't see his face till the end of the play. But throughout, you kept seeing this ball, this baseball. And it was him in a green suit. We put him, totally put him in a green suit. And all you'd see is the ball and somebody motioning and moving it in this uh, baseball piece about Michael Jordan's last at-bat. Um, Eureka Doi uh, Walker is uh, one of the founders of um, Theater of Yugen in San Francisco doing no theater in a Japanese classical form. Uh, Kevin Fortson is somebody I went to high school with and I'm not sure what he's doing now, but the last I'd heard he was producing in TV. I mean, the last I heard it was on Oprah, so I know that that's no longer happening. 
And then finally, Zara Berkman is a woman, an actor who I first saw at The Magic in an incredible play. Um, it was actually a rental that had come into the space. It had been at Marin Theater Company, extended until they couldn't extend it anymore. And then they brought it to the city where it continued to extend. And then she and I ended up working on uh, playmaking with Berkeley Rep, uh, where we would go into youth facilities and teach you know, the basics of playwriting. So that is my list of birthday people for the week. Okay, and I only have three. Uh, you took away Michael Austin and, um, and uh, Michael Austin and also um, John Warren. They were former guests on the Yay, so you can hear those interviews uh, earlier. Uh, the three that I have, Katie Amon, she is a young actress um, in the Bay Area, and her birthday was yesterday, August the 7th. Ah. And uh, two others, Eli Sonny Orkiza. He is, a, we've been talking a lot about the, the living document, and he's the creator of the living document. He's also an actor and producer. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing a bunch of stuff. I think, I don't know if that's Stacy. But in any case, um, his birthday is on the 12th. Uh, also on the 12th is uh, Cecilia Palmtag, and uh, I work with Cecilia. She um, had a gobbler. She did head a gobbler. She was head a gobbler. And also she directed Lifetimes 3, and she was a former guest on the Yay. And yeah. so I say happy birthday to Cecilia. Yeah. Uh, any shows? There are a couple of, uh, I've got some shows. Yeah, um, I've got a culture shock which is tonight at six o'clock, Gritty City Rep. Um, they're gonna be doing a reading. There's a wonderful cast of folks directed by Sherry Lynn Miller. Um, I have a link for the Playground uh, Festival, which is available on demand through, for free uh, through September 1st. And I don't have the third one, because um, it's on Facebook and I can't figure out how to make a link for it. Um, but there's a wonderful short piece that Hansford Prince did, um, an actor, I think his birthday wasn't too long ago, and uh, he's a wonderful Bay Area actor. Does this very cute piece that was totally written for Zoom. <laughs> An old man um, dials the wrong number on Zoom and ends up talking to a little kid. <laughs> uh, it's fun. It's a fun piece. So I'll put those in the, um, in the chat, and that's what I got. I've got two, um, TBA, Theater Bay Area, they have the virtual regional auditions. Usually there would be a cattle call of the regular auditions where you go to a particular place and you do your audition material to several directors and uh, producers. Now, of course, it's virtual and the deadline is August the 10th, that's this Monday. So if you're a budding actor and you want to get your name known, you can film uh, an audition piece and you submit it to uh, TBA and I'll have a link uh, for that, but the deadline is on Monday, August the 10th. Um, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, Plethos Productions is doing a streaming right. of that, and uh, Priya Gayadeen is in it, and a couple of other folks are in it. That'll be from August the 14th through the 23rd, and we'll continue to plug that. And that's what I have. Um, Stacy's mic, I think Stacy may have had some technical difficulties. Oh, there she is. Oh, there she is. You there? <laughs> I am. I just turned it off because I was afraid my background noise, which was cars going by, was... No, 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 that's fine. Did you enjoy yourself, Stacey? Oh, yeah, this was delightful. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, as I tell uh, everyone who listens to The Yay or who's watching The Yay, you're probably watching this on YouTube. Actually, I checked on Facebook. We're getting like 55 subscriptions, 55 likes 
uh, via Facebook. So we're, we're sort of growing, right. not big, but you know, it's bigger than what we had beforehand. Right. And also we're gaining a presence on YouTube. So everyone, thank you so much. Like subscribe. If you don't like it, tell me why. And you know, we'll fix <laughs> whatever we can. Um, for those who listen, the usual podcast way you can listen to the a podcast on any um any app that you listen to your podcasts on if you're an apple user like me you can look into the uh the little purple app on your phone uh matter of fact i can even show you right there it's right there you just click on it. <laughs> hey why not why not yes and uh you can oh sorry about that yeah there you go the a we're right there <laughs> And if you're an Android user, you can use the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you can find us. The A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram. You can find me at Red Space Clay. And I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. Stacy, where can people find you if they want to contact you? Yeah, I'm. But the best place would probably be on the Love the Struggle uh, website, which is uh, lovethestruggle.org. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link to that as well. And uh, we wish you the absolute best, Stacy, in uh, Love the Struggle and you know the future endeavors. And of course, let us know, you know, what the next development that will be. And as we always say, we are out. Yeah.